I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast supported by Pragati, a flagship media initiative of the Takshashila Institution. We're a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like to bring a fresh perspective to Indian affairs and an Indian perspective to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to All Things Policy. I am Saurabh Todi. And I have with me today my colleague Manoj Keval Ramani, and we will talk about you know the interesting developments that happened last week, especially in the context of the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting of foreign ministers that happened in Goa, and it did see attendance from including FMs from uh, Pakistan and China. Then there was also interesting that uh, Chin Gang, the Chinese FM, went from India to Pakistan. where he held bilateral talks with pakistan and also trilateral talks with afghanistan pakistan and uh, china so uh, manoj welcome thank you so much sir good to be here okay so we'll uh, start right in so i mean would you say it is at least a sign of some positive momentum that china and pakistan fms both came to india for the seo summit or it's because it is seo so both china and pakistan would have to come anyways should one subscribe any significance to that point i think that there has been a lot of discussion in india over the last few months about what sort of a role would china play uh, whether china would be a disruptive actor given you know this being sort of india's coming out party given that it's uh, the chairperson of the seo and it's hosting also the g20 uh, and would china sort of be a spoiler there's been lots of concern about you know whether beijing would escalate on the boundary whether it would create irritants for india to me i think a lot of that is very misplaced and it misunderstands chinese foreign policy i think that beijing understands as a g20 it has a different approach at the seo it has a different approach the seo is fundamentally china led Beijing is looking to make it work. It wants to see this as an institution that develops with greater purpose, has greater members, all of whom that can that might have some degree of anxiety with the role of the United States in their region, uh, and want to create or want to sort of hedge to some degree, and it wants to therefore build the SCO into an institution. to that effect which is to balance against the united states in terms of its competition with the united states now if that is your strategic objective and if india is a member of the sco knowing fully well that india is essentially well not necessarily hedging it leans towards the united states but it is because of its geographic proximity to china cannot necessarily and because of many other reasons does not necessarily become an ally of the united states do you want to antagonize india and vitiate the sco so i don't think that therefore there was any rational reason for beijing not to engage pragmatically in seo meetings which it has done you know the defense minister visited the foreign minister visited xi jinping will visit the interesting thing in that xi jinping visit when the seo leader summit happens will be whether there is a bilateral meeting with prime minister modi i think that's an opportunity where there will be a bilateral meeting i say why this is important is because for the last 3 and a half years there has been no bilateral meeting between the two individuals whether online or whether in person the last direct bilateral exchange that i can recall was in april 
which was a pro forma exchange where the Indian Prime Minister and the Chinese Premier and the Indian President and the Chinese President exchanged letters on the 70th anniversary of the establishment of bilateral ties. After that, there has been a brief engagement in November 2022 last year in Bali at the sideline of the G20 meeting, where there was a brief video of Modi going and shaking Xi Jinping's hand and then having a brief dialogue. But that's not a meeting, right? So that I think is important. But I don't think the idea that Beijing would disrupt India's SEO, you know, chairpersonship, it makes no sense to me given Beijing's strategic objective of what it wants to achieve with the SEO. As far as Pakistan visiting, again, you should you have to think of it in the broader sort of context of, you know, Pakistan would want to engage with India. It is India which is placing, you know, conditions saying, look, you need to, we can't have terror and dialogue, right? So from Pakistan's point of view, it's perfectly fine. You know, and particularly given that Pakistan currently finds itself in an economic mess for more reasons than one, including natural reasons, for it, engagement is a positive outcome in that sense, right? So therefore, I don't think there was any way at any point of time a challenge, but I don't think any of these visits mean that the bilateral relationships between India and China and India and Pakistan are likely to improve. Okay, so I mean, in a way, like countries, I mean, ought to, or they, they, they seem to figure out that they have to separate the multilateral engagements with their bilateral ones, even though these do provide a chance to, you know, engage if you want to, like that happened in India in some way. But yeah, okay. So so now, like if we look at the remarks by the Chinese FM Chingang at the SEO, it was very interesting that, you know, it seems that show, as you also say in your newsletter, the objective that China sees with the SEO. So can you talk about, you know, like these five aspects that China thinks would be achieved in SEO? I'll get to the five points that Chintang made at the SEO. But before that, just to dwell a little bit more on the bilateral issue between India and China. One of the focus points in the Indian media was remarks by the Chinese foreign minister about the boundary issue. And he said two things. One, he said that the current situation on the India-China borders is, quote, generally stable, unquote. And the other thing that he said is that he wants both sides to abide by relevant agreements, take joint action to further ease and cool down the border situation and maintain sustainable peace and tranquility in the border areas. Now, this was seen, you know, lots of there was lots of interpretation going on about whether this means that Beijing's approach to the boundary has changed or is likely to change. What does he mean by cooling down? I think there's a lot of overreading into some of these things. I don't think the approach is going to change anytime soon. We are seeing a status quo, a new status quo that's emerged in Ladakh, at least in eastern Ladakh, where the dispute began. And the dialogue that is going on is going on. We've seen some other places where there have been incidents and there has been tension. We've also seen some provocation with regard to, say, renaming of, you know, places in Arunachal Pradesh. I think that we should be, India should be extremely cautious over reading into any of these comments. I think the Chinese approach is long-term and so should ours be. So we should not be reading into too much into this. When Chingang says cool down, I think he means you cool down yeah. rather than, you know, <laughs> I should cool down. So, uh, he basically <laughs> wants that. So I have a question. So, I mean, it seems like, or at least in the readouts, that India and China seem to be talking past each other. India is like, the situation is not normal. The situation right now has jeopardized the entire bilateral relationship. And as you also saw, you know, like during the defense meeting as well, China seems to say that, you know, like, let's not worry too much about border or, you know, like it's, do you think they're talking past each other right now? Or is it just like 
both are playing the long game where they're trying to dig in heels and hopefully there will be some someone will relent or there will be some opportunity where both can climb down like how do you see that because it seems like both seem to be like not accepting the like what the actual status is i think both are basically both understand what the actual status quo on the boundary is and the status has changed right and the status has changed because china has had expanded capacity and it feels that it can exercise that capacity and that power to try and coerce india now to what end that is the question right whether this coercion is to stymie india's infrastructure development whether the coercion is to try and divert indian resources towards the boundary as opposed to maritime development whether the coercion is about pushing india into a corner or sort of quote unquote teaching it a lesson so that it does not sort of become much closer to the united states and cautioning india on that or whether it is all of the above you know that is tricky right at least from what we know from chinese statements there is an element of all of this right so but it, the fact is that it is using this coercion and it feels that it has the there is a certain right to use this coercion because you are the preeminent power in the region from an indian point of view india is basically saying look uh, we can't have a normal relationship and uh, with tensions on the border which is sort of akin to what we are telling pakistan that there is a certain condition for you to have a normal relationship with us uh, and beijing is saying you don't have the power to enforce that so why are you asking for it except this new status quo except our dominant role and except the coercion that we are meeting out to you uh, to which india is saying sorry that is uh, you know we may not be there may be an asymmetry but we are not going to be pushed around right i think it's a tricky situation and i think from an indian point of view i would say the only approach that best serves our interests is to be patient is to continue to build our capacity and is to not yield to the coercion for any short term political gains or short term sort of gains because you feel that there is going to be escalation i think we should be prepared if there is escalation because that is the only way for us to be able to deal with this coercion because once you give in to it there will be more so to me that's where i see the boundary issue i wanted to move on to the seo and if you read at if you read chingang's comments at the uh, seo summit he makes five points right Uh, and all of them are fundamentally well not all of them but predominantly they're about the role of the united states right the first point is he wants all seo members to adhere to strategic autonomy and you know and that he specifically mentions pushing back against attempts by external forces to interfere in regional affairs uh, and plot quote unquote color revolutions this is about the united states and its influence uh, he talks about terrorism and this is a fundamental concern that seo members have all on, uh, across um he talks about the need to reject breaking of supply chains and maintaining smooth industrial supply chains this is again about fundamentally about us policy and the shift in globalization that is taking place economic globalization the fourth point is about you know pushing ahead with uh, gdi gsi and gci which is a global development global security and global civilization initiatives uh, which are china's three big initiatives launched over the past uh, since 2021 uh, and last one was in march 2023 um and again all of these are fundamentally about building china's role as a responsible major power but also undercutting the the united states's role in the region in the indo pacific region uh, and finally he talks about you know enhancing seo's capacity by completing the accession of countries like iran and belarus again worth seeing iran and belarus both countries very uh, opposed to the united states of course we have difficult relationship with the united states belarus obviously you know close ally of russia and you know so uh, it, these are his five core views of what the seo should be doing and if you can see beyond the terrorism picture which is a 
regional complicated issue. You have all of it is about essentially creating an organization that mobilizes countries in the developing world in the region in Asia around you know some degree of pushback against the United States. So that's his fundamental view of what he wants the SCO to be. And from an Indian point of view, the challenge is: um, Do you? What is the value of being in such an organization, given your growing proximity to the United States and the fact that it's not just growing proximity, but it's a strategically, it is the most strategically significant relationship for you? Yeah. So I mean, it is quite uh, fascinating that you know in his statements, China would like call out the specific terrorist movements uh, in its Xinjiang region and, and, and around the area, but would not call out Pakistan. Although that an entire statement could easily, you know, like mean that India, like would, would be applicable to Pakistan, at least in the context of, of India. So, I mean, given that a lot of these concerns seem to be, you know, like very China centric, there have been discussions or like trying to understand people, I try to understand why is India in the SCO in the first place? And we saw like the Indian foreign minister like like tried to I think explain this during one of his interactions that it is like a way to engage with Central Asia and to ensure that you know India has a voice in Central Asia. And so like how valid do you think that 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 argument is in the sense that does India like does it serve India's purpose to be in SEO in any way? Because I mean if SEO is a organization which has you know like almost all countries in eurasia and is is now expanding further so i mean it uh, recently also added uae as a dialogue partner as well so is there any use of india being in seo or is it just like we're just trying we're confused as we are with like brics or ric or like how do you see that you know i'm quite sort of i'm a little torn about this uh, i don't think i necessarily have a coherent view on this but just to add to firstly you know before i get to what my incoherent view on this is uh, <laughs> just to add uh, it's not just the uae but the uae kuwait maldives myanmar uh, all joined as dialogue partners oh, wow. yeah. uh, which is uh, interesting um, but why am i torn about this is because i can see in theory the logic of you know the seo allowing india to essentially be part of discussions uh, particularly after the us withdrawal in afghanistan to be part of discussions in terms of the emerging continental security landscape that india faces now even there i think there are challenges right for example a couple of years ago after the us withdrawal in afghanistan uh, at the sidelines of the seo meeting i think it's in one of the central asian countries i can't remember there was a meeting of you know on afghanistan from which most SEO members were part of that meeting, whereas India was not included. So even in those blocks, you can be excluded. But I can see the logic of India needing to be part of this security framework that is being discussed around terrorism, you know, around extremism, around connectivity in Eurasia, because you know this is one of the key bodies through which at least dialogue is taking place, and it and it has given and uh, you know there has been some opening where you know we had the India Central Asia Summit, the first ever India Central Asia Summit, was, you know a while back. Our engagement with Central Asian countries is extremely, extremely you know limited. Our trade is extremely limited; it's marginal compared to say China or Russia's engagement. So. You know, we are we are new in that sense, but this region is very critical to our broader security. On Afghanistan, again, it's important for India to be part of this conversation on Afghanistan. And we are recently we've heard reports of possibly a new grouping of four countries: Russia, India, China, and Pakistan, that could establish some sort of yeah. dialogue. I mean, I think this is a Russian proposal. So it's important for India to be engaged in this region. 
and i see the value of that particularly i see the value of you know not staying out i mean i don't know how much you can do by being in but by being out you perhaps suffer more damage so to that, that extent like 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 the idea of you know like oh, india can i mean exabotage any proposal which is not very in line like very much in like how like how do you like hold that argument or is it just like being wishful thinking i mean i don't think of sabotage in that sense i mean i think india what this indian government has shown is that you know india and i think even previous indian governments and india will follow its interests right there's a much there's a quite a bit of pragmatism and you know one could say that that pragmatism is very narrowly focused it's not stepping back and looking at the world from a strategic lens it's looking at from a narrow near term interest perspective and that can be a legitimate criticism of indian foreign policy but i think that it is worth being in the group to be able to shape outcomes or or if at least not shape outcomes that may be positive for you at least delay deter outcomes that may be negative consequences to you right now you one can call that sabotage i don't think it's sabotage i think it's you know uh, and again particularly as the grouping broadens and when you have countries like maldives in there these are countries that are important to india's broader security mm-hmm. right so i think that it's worthwhile being in the group on the flip side i do see the strategic fallout right i mean there is a strategic fallout in the sense that if us india if us china competition worsens you know we're today at a very bad stage i mean both americans and chinese analysts tend to describe this as the worst phase since normalization in 78 we are at an impasse which is going to last for the foreseeable future between the us and china how bad this contest gets one has to wait and see but i think that context if you are part of a grouping which is seen as fundamentally anti american then you know it's tricky now that said it's worth noting that the united arab emirates is a close partner of the united states and it's now a dialogue partner in the sco so india is not the only country that is doing this uncomfortable balancing act others are too doing it and at the same time while both uae and india are part you know india is now a member of the sco uae is a dialogue partner at the same time you're seeing the i2u2 partnership yeah. where the uae is there and just this just today we've had reports yeah. of the msas of saudi arabia yeah. india the uae and you know uh, the us meeting so i think there are sort of there's a lot of flux at present but on india and the seo i see the logic of being party to it i don't think that being party to the seo is suddenly going to expand our economic and security engagement with central asia many fold that's a structural problem it's going to take a long time but i see the value of being at the table at the same time being at that table can have consequences in terms of your partnership with the united states and perhaps that's the cost that we need to be willing to bear because we feel that because from our point of view from india's point of view you know the indo pacific is not just the oceans it's also the continental domain uh, so we need to think of both of these so that's how sort of my take is like i said it's not a clear forward you know stand it's not a straight forward stand but i think it's a complex issue and you know if on the if on the balance i was to make the choice i would also say that it's better that we are in the seo yeah i mean i mean i was just thinking that I think as SCO expands and as I think more dialogue partners become observers and observers become members, it might not be as much of an anti-US grouping anymore. Is because I wonder how how much of like Central Asia or West Asian countries or even countries in South Asia would like to be part of like an like an explicitly anti-US grouping. So maybe the expansion would. try to maybe tone down the anti us orientation of sco with time or 
I don't know. I mean, I also don't. So I don't think I don't think that will happen. I think That's the SEO right. will fundamentally remain because look at the people who are driving the agenda. Mm-hmm. Right? It's China fundamentally and Russia, and both of them have a very have increasingly. You know, I mean, the Russian relationship with the United States is currently in the you know is in the dustbin, and if you look at the Chinese relationship with the United States, it's it's on its way to like dustbin. I said. It's on. It's on its way there. So I, I think that it's it's not like this is going to change. I think the SEO will fundamentally remain an anti-American block in some degree, uh, but there will be more objectives. And right? it's not just about anti. Like so terrorism is one key part of it, and this is something that the region feels that it needs to address. I mean, has the SEO been effective in addressing it? Of course. Yeah. But it is an agenda which brings countries together. The okay. stability of Afghanistan is an issue that they feel that the countries in the region need to address. And can you arrive at certain formulations to try and do that? Uh, I think this is exploration that's taking place. So it's an agenda beyond that. But that, you know, the idea that the U.S. of counterbalancing against the U.S. will be a key part of the SEO movement, irrespective. I will differ with you on BRICS and RIC. I think RIC, again, is late 90s. It came into being, you know, 1998, essentially. Um, was a different era, different purpose. Today, to me, it serves really no purpose, you know, and it's an informal thing. It's not a, you know, it's like, it's not a, like a formal block, which is doing whatever. It's an informal meeting that takes place. And that's fine. BRICS, I fundamentally, dip, again, I think we're looking at it from today's lens. But if you look at when BRICS came into being, it was for a very different purpose. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing today is that Beijing is trying, I mean, if you go to the BRICS summit last year, what you will see is that the Chinese essentially said, oh, we want to try and see if we can, you know, put into motion the global security initiative under the BRICS. Why? BRICS was supposed to be an economic entity, mm-hmm. right? Security elements did play a role, but it was supposed to be an economic looking. So the Chinese are going to try and, you know, and of course, as the Russian relationship with the West goes bad, even the Russians are sort of in agreement with that idea. So uh, India, however, can sort of push back on that, right? And again, Brazil is an interesting actor. Last year, Bolsonaro was president and his comments at the BRICS and South Africa's comments at the BRICS would not necessarily reflective of the Chinese and Russian agenda. Today, with Lula, you might see a little bit more congruence in that agenda. Uh, but how much of that will be security related? Who knows? Uh, at an economic level, yes, there might be. So uh, again, I think that it's, it's, it's valuable for India to keep playing a part in BRICS because it's beyond just, you know, and it's valuable for India to also, in the BRICS, at least you can drive the agenda. In the SEO, it's very difficult to drive the agenda. Okay. Stay tuned to All Things Policy. We'll be right back after a short commercial break. Now, if we turn back to Chin Gang's visit, so from India, he he goes to Pakistan and where he meets with uh, leaders from Afghanistan as well. So how do you see, I mean, the outcome of the Pakistan, Afghanistan, China trilateral? It seems like uh, in, the, in the, at least statement, it says that, you know, they would like Afghanistan to be a part of BRI, which I think is a statement that is, I mean, it's been, hap- it, it's been said that that is an ambition for a very long time, but it has not fructified. So do you see that it, like things have changed or is it just like a reinforcement of what the broader idea has been, but not really much into how to implement it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's really useful to think of what Chingang did when he went to Pakistan. The first thing is that he met with, except for the Pakistani prime minister, he met with every key stakeholder, right? He met with the Pakistani president, he met with the army chief, he met with Bilawal Bhutto, who was his counterpart. So uh, he had quite a, uh, you know, uh, compare that to his visit to India, 
right? Mm-hmm. Where he met with his counterpart, he attended the DSCO and he was out. So that just tells you a little bit about the depth of the relationship. Another interesting sort of bilateral development between China and Pakistan was, you know, Chingang addressing young diplomats from both countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I'll quote from some of his comments that right? he said that China-Pakistan ties were a, quote, model of state-to-state relations, a living textbook that should be studied and a good story that everyone should try and tell. So, you know, he, he sort of talks up the bilateral relationship as being this ironclad partnership. And the Ch- Pakistani army chief talked again about, you know, the relationship being sweeter than honey and all those epithets. <laughs> so, you know, it tells you that there is a lot of, that this congruence sort of sustains between the two sides. Although there are deep issues with regard to implementation of CPEC, delays in implementation of CPEC around uh, security for yeah. Chinese personnel institutions, all of that. Recently, a Chinese citizen was caught up charged under the Pakistani blasphemy law. Yes. And that had become a huge deal. But very quietly, the case was withdrawn and the person was allowed was allowed to go. So these are the kind of challenges that they have. And this is long-standing. This is going to sustain. In Pakistan also, one of the big messages that Chingang had for the current leadership, but also for the young diplomats, was that, you know, you should be pushing back against anything that stokes a new Cold War. So again, it just tells you a little bit about the prism with which uh, he uh, went to the country. On the trilateral engagement between Pakistan, China and Afghanistan, I think it is, you know, it's really interesting that if you go and look at what the Chinese have been saying on Afghanistan, uh, you know, at one level, you will see uh, a lot of, you know, talk about how, Oh, once the U.S. has has now uh, exited Afghanistan, it's sort of open season for China and China will enter in uh, and it will take over all these mineral resources that Afghanistan has and natural resources. uh, And it's going to sort of, you know, make hay while the sun shines uh, and there's going to be lots of gain for China. But if you actually look at what Chinese policy has been with regard to Afghanistan, there has been expanded business presence but there have been terrorist attacks which are specifically targeted chinese citizens um there was a chinese diplomat who was visiting a hotel who was specifically targeted uh, at that point of time was not in the hotel uh, and so there have been specific instances right the taliban has uh, you know and there have been instances because there has been a div- there's a division in afghanistan between different Actions, entities and yeah. different groups right and it's difficult for say the Taliban to try and control some of the other groups because you get pushback, you know, about selling out and all of that. So it's difficult for the Taliban to also control some of these attacks. Um, just a, a, you know, a few uh, you know a few weeks ago in April, the Chinese government uh, issued a position paper on Afghanistan. Uh, it has eleven points, and I think it's worth everybody going through it to try and understand this trilateral meeting and what it means. And if you see. That position paper, when I covered it, it basically, a lot of it essentially talked about terrorism, security. You know, a lot of it was focused on terrorism and security. So it was essentially a threat prism through which Beijing was looking at Afghanistan as opposed to a prism of opportunities, right? The ETIM and cracking down on ETIM was a key part of it. The paper actually said that, you know, China hopes that Afghanistan will fulfill its commitments in earnest and take more effective measures to crack down on all terrorist forces, including the ETIM, with greater determination, protect Chinese citizens and institutions, and so on and so forth. It talks about, you know, Afghanistan must address root causes of terrorism, uh, stop not be a safe haven or breeding ground for terrorism. It talks about the fact that extremism remains the biggest threat. So I'm reading three, four points from 11-point paper, which essentially talks about 
security challenges as opposed to anything else um so that i think is the first uh, thing that uh, everyone must keep in mind whenever we think of you know what uh, you know pakistan china might get from afghanistan um in terms of the trilateral meeting that took place if you look at the outcomes i mean again chingang pitched gdi gsi gci he talked about bri but there has been no extension of bri again because security has not security has been a big challenge he talked about uh, four broad agreements that uh, came out from the trilateral meeting one is you know that we must respect each other's sovereignty territorial integrity and properly address differences and disputes through equal consultation this is really important because ever since the taliban has taken over pakistan uh, taken over afghanistan you have seen significant friction between pakistan and afghanistan yeah. you've been firing across the borders the borders have closed there's been challenges with regard to the durand line so it, it's not easy and china finds itself trapped between trying to negotiate between these two entities and manage the dispute between them so extension of cpec into afghanistan is something that we should be uh, you know uh, we shouldn't sort of anticipate any of this to happen in a hurry right so that's the first thing the second point that they talked about was again counter terrorism cooperation and that's a huge part uh, it's significant for both countries uh, china and afghanistan uh, and beijing is not even accorded recognition to the taliban regime and it's unlikely to the challenge remains with regard to terrorism they talked they talked about restarting dialogue mechanisms as your third agreement we're starting with the foreign minister dialogue and then talk about other economic issues such as trade agriculture poverty reduction whatever uh, and finally expanding bri and improving the cross border trade system again like i said we'll have to wait and see whether this happens i don't i'm not holding my breath and saying that this is going to happen imminently because the fundamental point is that beijing's view on afghanistan is not an opportunity perspective it is a threat perspective and mitigating that threat perspective and that is likely to persist it is not likely to shift anytime soon at least the way things stand yeah i was wondering i mean given you know like till a decently functioning state like pakistan if china if chinese investments and individuals are facing threats in pakistan how safe is afghanistan you know which is not i mean a functioning state per se so so in that way i think the threat perception is increased many fold so you would wonder that how would like china try to invest let's say in in afghanistan and it's, i mean it's also like a bit in contrast to let's say the india's approach to afghanistan which i mean obviously you would like it to be secure but india's focus has been also more on the developmental aspect of relationship so that also is an interesting contrast yeah i mean look what the chinese have been able to do ever since the american withdrawal is that let's just look at the economic engagement of afghanistan right a lot of the larger investments right so whether it's regard to the copper mine investment or whether it's regard to other things extraction of oil etc all of these have been extremely slow because there are legacy disputes that have been associated and those are not really most moved forward there are certain small companies uh, small chinese companies so there has been an expansion of chinese economic engagement so certain small companies which dealt with things like you know animal hides human hair some degree of you know rare earth extraction you know they did enter in and there is some of that trade a lot some of this is illegal also and that's taking place and there are certain companies which are sort of medium in scale they have either government contracts or whatever and they are working in exclusive zones where you know chinese are living or things like that where there is greater protection but there has been nothing massive 
from a Chinese perspective and economic engagement. And it is extremely difficult for that to happen. People who've traveled to Afghanistan in the last couple of years do say that there is increased Chinese presence. But then again, like I said, that, that has come with expanded, uh, you know, terrorist threat to the Chinese. And that's pushed them back further. Also, I think Beijing understands that there are certain factions, like I said, which have some degree of recognition with the Uyghur issue, right? And they do sort of, you know, they, they are uncomfortable with China's handling of the situation in Xinjiang. And there are these hardline groups which the Taliban has to sort of keep in mind. So I think that that's why any of this engagement is going to be tricky. Even India's development engagement, I mean, you know, has been gradual with the Afghanistan. The idea has been that you try and establish contact because you need to now deal with the entity that you previously did not want to deal with. But it's not like Indian businesses are rushing in Mm -hmm. or anything like that, right? Because security remains the primary concern. And like you said, if security is a primary challenge in Pakistan, which has at least a established state machinery, particularly with Mm -hmm. the armed forces in control, in Afghanistan, it's even more challenging, right? And I think that is that to me remains Beijing's primary concern with regard to Afghanistan more than anything else. So I had this like one uh, like question I wanted to ask. So if if you look at the the, the statement like the China Pakistan like statement, so it says that China is willing to enhance cooperation with Pakistan in security capacity building and security system. So I mean there was a lot of uh, like talk about you know like the safety and security of Chinese citizens. So there has been talk about, you know, like talks, I mean, slash some concern in India that there might be a case or a situation where China might deploy private security forces or security forces in Pakistan to try to, you know, like offset this risk, which seems like Pakistan has not been able to, you know, handle it pretty well. Where do you see that going? And then, and second, given the, and like almost regular uh, breakout of hostility between Afghanistan and Pakistan along the border, is there first capacity and second willingness in China to try to you know work around something, some solution, something to make the Afghanistan-Pakistan border more stable or that is a bridge too far? So my understanding is that at present, there is no physical involvement that Beijing would be interested in in trying to manage somebody else's borders. You know, that's a quagmire that you don't want to get yourself involved in. And I don't think that Beijing is interested in getting itself involved. What it is interested in doing is it is interested in pressurizing both sides to try and, you know, play nice. In terms of, you know, private security contractors, uh, it's been some time that there has been this dialogue about what can China do. And what we've seen is that, you know, with each uh, progressive, say, attack on Chinese uh, personnel, you know, and there have been uh, a significant mm-hmm. uh, number of them. I mean, if I could just to recount some, in April 2021, there was a bombing in Quetta, which targeted the Chinese ambassador, uh, then Ambassador Nongrong. In July 2021, there was an attack in Khyber Pakhtunwa, in which nine Chinese workers were killed. Then August 2021, suicide bombing in Gwadar. Then in April 2022, an attack on the Confucius Institute in Karachi. Uh, and in some of these cases, what we've seen is that... Uh, China has sent uh, investigators and police officials and things like that uh, and teams like this to try and conduct investigations because and that to me is a reflection of unease with how Pakistan has dealt with some of these cases right and in some of these cases you know the Chinese have said that it's their work you know particularly things like getting data from cell phones footage enhancement technology 
use of technology which has helped crack some of these cases to me that is a reflection of you know mistrust and distrust between these two partners in terms of deployment of private security personnel i think beijing is very very cautious about whether it wants to deploy the pa deploy the pap or the pla because that comes with significant costs domestically in pakistan because you are then seen as to some degree an occupying force creating an enclave for yourself so it would be far more comfortable to use private security contractors who are hired by enterprises but even that the pakistani government has resisted so far so there has been no evidence that there have been any private security contractors that have been deployed so i read some of these remarks by chingang about you know trying to enhance cooperation and security capacity building to be perhaps in part to do with you know more technology more sort of joint probes and things like that um, but also perhaps pushing much more for presence of private chinese security contractors which is a reflection like i said of distrust from the chinese side but from the pakistani side is the case of well look we can handle things on our own you don't need to be involved because it's a matter of sovereign integrity and things like that so this is a friction point which i think will continue to sustain and the day pakistan gives in to some of this i think it will also be a lot of challenges domestically politically for pakistani politicians because the narrative will be about china being an occupying force plus i mean i mean i think so also kind of go against i mean if the whole idea is you know pakistan at least in the minds of pakistanis and the pakistan army the moment they agree to it either you know willfully or through coercion in some way that it's an acceptance that pakistan cannot handle this and that is like a dent in their own self image as well however good or I bad agree. that is i agree okay so i mean i mean at the end i mean would you say that uh, i mean any presence of chinese security forces sorry chinese private security forces would this have any impact on india in in any way in any capacity like it provides you know like kind of a enclave for chinese to you know do their own operations or i mean there is no evidence as of yet that you know like this will happen but does india have an interest in ensuring that this doesn't happen i mean I, yes and no i mean we don't want to see chinese forces in pakistan but then there is very little that we can do about it you know so you know it's something that we would have very little control over i think in you know if chinese forces are present in pakistan there would be a security challenge from an indian point of view but it also again like i said it creates a certain domestic situation within pakistan which may not be as you know again that sometimes the tighter the embrace the more the difficulties so you know it depends it honestly it depends but, but i think whether it affects our interest or not the, the problem is the challenge will be that look we we have very little say in something like that right so i mean one would have to think about it you know depending on what the kind of deployment is what the kind of role is and all of that but yeah there's very little that india can do about it mm-hmm. okay so at the end of it i mean i'll request like graze on a crystal ball and see i mean so if xi jinping comes for seo i mean i it seems like he might is there a chance that he might not come for g20 or like how does it how does china see g20 i mean i mean apart from the fact that you know like india is the chair this year like does china see the utility of g20 so it wants to at least not discredit the g20 system or do you think any decision of china, of the chinese president coming depends on the fact that who is the host and not the g20 structure i think it would be foolhardy for xi jinping to not attend in both the sco and the g20 summits i think it would be important for him to attend both of those uh, meetings 
I think from an Indian point of view, we will be wanting to host even Vladimir Putin. If Putin is coming, Xi Jinping is coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't think that that is that's not happening. I mean, even if Putin, uh, if Putin is not coming, there is a certain issue that you know, depending on what happens, I don't think the Indians will. I don't think our side is going to not invite mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin. So I have a feeling that you will see both of them, the and you will see a lot of friction. It is going to be a difficult summit to manage in terms of expectations. I think what India did in late february march when we had the g20 foreign ministers meeting where you put out the statement while highlighting that these paragraphs these countries did not agree i think that is a good workable solution and i think it also shows from an indian side a certain degree of resolve to try and not issue a statement because there is disagreement uh, but put it out there saying that xyz countries don't agree with you it also sends a message to your partners in the west so yeah in my broad sense is that i don't think xi jinping will want to particularly the SEO, but even the G20, I don't think that he will be wanting to undermine them. It won't be good for his own policy objectives. You know, China doesn't want to be seen as an irresponsible global power uh, for other sort of G20 countries also. So it would therefore make sense for him to attend. But then, you know, we'll wait. G20 is still a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The we'll, SEO we'll, summit is earlier. We'll see how SEO goes because I think both Putin and she would be here, uh, hopefully. And that would maybe yeah. set the tone, you know, like uh, of how how this will be managed in September. Where I mean, I'm looking forward to seeing whether we get a bilateral meeting between Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Modi and what the outcomes of that bilateral meeting are. So is it likely, I mean, I mean, obviously it's, it's a, a lot of it just conjecture here, but like, is it more likely to get a meeting, if at all, after like during SEO than during G20? Yeah, I think during the SEO because it's coming first and India is the host. So it is likely that you will... Now, it's not mandatory that yeah. there will be a bilateral meeting. But, you know, it's something that can be arranged by both sides. And if that does happen, I think it will be worth looking at what the outcomes are. So, for example, last year when the SEO summit happened, we did not get a bilateral meeting between Modi and Xi Jinping. But given that India is a host this year, you know, you it's likely that that might happen. So we'll have to wait and see how that plays out. Okay. Uh, thanks, Manoj. Thank you for your time. And I hope to have a new podcast during the SEO meeting, hopefully discussing the bilateral meeting between India and China. Absolutely. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Manoj. Thanks. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.